Bibles and turn to Matthew 5. This morning we begin working our way through the, one of the most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we began, uh, we read through the whole uh, sermon, chapter 5, 6, and 7, and then we noted a handful of introductory details to the sermon. Uh, but this week we actually start walking into the sermon as we're going to consider the Beatitudes, which are the, occupy the first 12 verses. So let's read uh, these Beatitudes together, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and then we'll get into, our, uh, get into our study. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help to understand uh, what the Word says to us this morning, to understand it in its proper context, and to appropriately apply it to our lives as uh, believers uh, living in this age. And give us the wisdom, Lord, to know where we need to shore up our lives in some of these areas, to reflect uh, in greater ways the character of your Son. And so we pray that this time would not be wasted in any way, but uh, that you would use it to continue to conform us to the image of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, before diving into these profound expressions of Jesus, let's make sure we understand uh, what's taking place in the larger context as it relates to this sermon. So I want to review uh, two thoughts that I gave last week at the, uh, as we be introduced the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll get into the Beatitudes uh, in our study this morning. First, I want to remind you that uh, a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the coming kingdom of Christ. And Matthew has already, in the previous chapters, woven this idea of the kingdom through chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, if you 
want to go back there and look, you'll notice that in verse 2, he noted the message that John the Baptist preached as he prepared the way for Messiah. Remember John the Baptist's message there in 3.2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who repented and were baptized under John's ministry were preparing themselves spiritually for entrance into that kingdom. Because as you see John's words a few verses later, it's not enough simply to be called a son of Abraham in order to enter the kingdom. You have to rightly relate to the king himself. And so that was the purpose of John's baptism, one of preparation. When Jesus began his earthly ministry in chapter 4, Matthew continues to weave this thread of the kingdom through chapter 4, verse 17. He says that Jesus came preaching the same message that John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then, as, as, as Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus and the preaching of Jesus, you come to chapter 4, verse 23, and we have this summary statement that introduces what Jesus is about to do. And 4.23 says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So the content of Jesus' teaching and preaching was the presentation of the coming kingdom. Now as we come into chapters 5 and 7, 5 through 7, Matthew is giving us one example of the kind of sermon that Jesus preached. And so we see that the kingdom occupied a primary theme in this sermon. In fact, the kingdom is mentioned eight times in three chapters. Now, this is the first thing we noted, but the second thing we wanted to note about the uh, just sort of understanding the sermon is that the emphasis of the sermon is on the righteousness expected of those who are citizens of the kingdom. Okay, so the kingdom is the primary theme in the Sermon on the Mount, but the second thing we noted is that the theme or the emphasis of this sermon is on the righteousness expected of those who are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And we we noted this because at first glance it might seem that the Sermon on the Mount is teaching a works-based salvation. There are some expressions through there that can, can confuse us at times. But when we understand what Jesus is saying, that's not the case at all. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is similar to what John does in his preaching. Now, let me say that again, because I want to sort of unpack that thought for us together. Okay, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is similar to what John does in his preaching. Okay, so go back to chapter 3, and you'll notice what what John does in his his preaching. Chapter 3, we see in verse 2 that he is saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 7, you come down and you see that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And he says this in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, if you were to turn over, if you would, over to, and I have you turned over because this is an important thought for us to unpack, but turn over to Luke chapter 3 and we, we understand what John means when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. All right, so, so Luke chapter 3 is a, is a parallel account of, of John baptizing and preparing the way for the, for, the, for the Messiah. 
But Luke gives us a, a few more details as to what it means to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. So notice chapter 3 and begin in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered, now he's, he's unpacking what the fruits of repentance are. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So when I say that Jesus is doing the similar thing that John is doing in his preaching, John is saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you need to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance, and then he shows what genuine repentance looks like. Now Jesus is doing the same thing in his preaching. In 4.17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show what genuine repentance looks like. What the heart of a how the heart of a true uh, repentant person is to live and interact. So let me clarify this. Jesus and John are not saying you need to repent and you need to do righteous works in order to enter the kingdom, as if both are, are separate prerequisites for entering the kingdom. Rather, what they're saying is you need to repent. And the natural result of genuine repentance is a righteous life. So, as we were preparing for last week's sermon, or an understanding sermon, the amount I finished with this particular quote. The natural questions on the heart of every Jew would have been, am I eligible to enter Messiah's kingdom? Am I righteous enough to qualify for entrance? The only standard of righteousness the people knew was that laid down by the current religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And you remember what Jesus said about them, right? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Would one who followed that standard be accepted in Messiah's kingdom? So Jesus' sermon, therefore, must be understood in the context of his offer of the kingdom to Israel and the need for repentance to enter that kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount did not give a constitution for the kingdom, nor does it present the way of salvation. The sermon showed how a person who is in right relationship with God should conduct his life. So in other words, the Sermon on the Mount describes the life of a repentant person. Now the reason this is so important is because in Jesus' day, and I think in our day, there are many who would claim the name of Jesus Christ, but not bear the fruit of genuine repentance. So you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 21, and Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the one who bears the fruit of genuine repentance. 
Which is why Jesus finishes the sermon with that famous uh, analogy of, of, of building your house on the rock and the sand. He finishes the sermon by saying this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like one who has built the house on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them or does not bear the fruit of genuine repentance will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. Okay, so now that we've understood the overall thrust of the Sermon on the Mount, let's get into this portion of the Beatitudes. And I have just a handful of introductory comments about the Beatitudes, and we'll, we'll look at all of them, uh, or we'll look at each of them individually um, in this sermon, rather than, rather than breaking them up over, over a couple weeks. There are eight Beatitudes that make up this portion of the sermon, and I think form an appropriate introduction to this sermon. Now, the word Beatitude, it just comes from the Latin word meaning blessed, which is how each one of these statements begin. That was new information to me. I never even thought to ask questions why they might be called the Beatitudes. Okay, you'd think I'd be a little more curious than that, but I guess that's not the case. Now, you'll notice that each one of these Beatitudes follows a simple pattern. There is a pronouncement of blessing. Blessed is the one. Then there is a description of the kind of person that's being blessed. Blessed is the one who is poor in spirit or is a peacemaker or is merciful. And then there is an explanation for why that person is blessed that follows thirdly. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this kind of language is not unique to the Beatitudes. In fact, we find these blessing statements all throughout the scriptures. You remember Psalm 1-1, that familiar psalm, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Or uh, John 20, verse 29, Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me. Yet believe. So you read through the scriptures, there's all these expressions of, of blessing. It's, a, it's common, common uh, terminology in the Bible. You'll also notice that these are not if then statements. Okay? The idea is not if you do this, then you will be blessed, although there's probably some truth there. But rather, Jesus is describing people who are already this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. That is, they've repented. They're bearing the fruits of repentance. And Jesus is saying, you people who demonstrate these things, you are already in a position of blessing. Now, let's understand the word blessed because it can be a little bit confusing or give us the wrong idea at times. The word blessed, as we look at it in a scriptural context, it can mean happy, it can mean glad, it can mean joyful. But we should be careful not to see this as the continued emotional state of believers, as if believers will always be happy or always be glad. Okay, I think sometimes we misunderstand what Jesus means when he says bless, as if believers are always going to be bubbly uh, or always going to be giddy. That's not the focus of, of Jesus' statements. To be blessed speaks of 
a, a joyful, contented spirit, sometimes even in, in the face of things that are going wrong. Okay? So believers will not always walk around happy, but they can have a consistent, contented joy in God because of the future that awaits them in the kingdom. This is what it means to be blessed, this idea of a, of a contented joy in, in God. Now, the last thing I want you to notice by way of introduction to the Beatitudes is that the reason for the believer's blessed state is tied specifically to their citizenship in the kingdom. Let me say that again. The reason for the believer's blessed state is tied specifically to their citizenship in the kingdom. Right? This is how the blessings are bookended. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom. And then the last one is in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. So the Beatitudes are bookended by these two blessings of the kingdom. But rather than blessing one and blessing eight being about the kingdom, I think what we should see is that all of these blessings are, have this idea of, of kingdom blessing in them. Right? So whether the blessing is that they are comforted or whether the blessing is that they inherit the earth or that they see God... All of these are blessings of being a citizen of the kingdom. So that they're all connected to our, our citizenship in, 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 our, in, the, in the future kingdom. Now, as citizens of the kingdom, we experience these blessings. Now we experience them in part. But there will be a day when the king returns, when we will experience the blessings of these beatitudes in their, their, their full their full effect. And we look forward to, to that day. Now, let's get into the Beatitudes. So I've got an eight-point sermon, all right? And each one of them is, the, is, the, is one of the Beatitudes. Okay. So Beatitude number one, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude here in verse 3, this probably serves as the foundational beatitude or foundational element to, to the other ones. The blessing is pronounced on those who are poor in spirit. Well, the natural question is, well, what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Well, what does it mean to be poor? Okay, to be poor means that you don't have the sufficient resources to meet your needs. So to be poor in spirit is the same idea only in the spiritual realm. You don't have what you need to meet your spiritual need before God. So it's this idea that apart from God, you and I are spiritually bankrupt with no righteousness and ability to contribute to our need or pay our debt in any way. Our best efforts are described in Scripture as dirty rags. And we're not simply low income in spirit. We are poor in spirit with no ability to contribute. 
And we sing about this. We sang about it last week in the song, Jesus Paid It All. We're going to sing about it again at the end of our service in the song, Rock of Ages. But we sing in Jesus Paid It All, For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. And we're going to sing about it in Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, or dirty to this fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So the picture that we sing in these songs is of our spiritual bankruptcy. We are destitute, we are naked, we are helpless, we are dirty, and all of these make up this concept of what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, in spite of our spiritual helplessness, Jesus says, this is the person who is blessed. They are blessed because they're not depending on themselves or their own righteousness for their salvation. They're blessed because they see clearly where they stand in relationship to God, and they know that their salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. Jesus says of these people, notice the blessing, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that little word, there are these two words. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting phrase. And it emphasizes the exclusive nature of the kingdom. So uh, Leon Morris, one of my favorite commentaries on, on the book of Matthew, he says this about that phrase. He, he, he sort of offers another translation of it and says this, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Or he says, the kingdom belongs only to these people. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom does not belong to those who are rich in spirit. And if you're rich in spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Remember, Jesus says, I didn't come to to those who have no need of a physician. I came to those who are sick. In other words, those who will recognize their need to be healed. And so in order to come to the place where you enter Christ's kingdom, you have to come to the end of yourself and realize you have nothing to contribute to your salvation and realize that it's entirely a a gift of God's grace from beginning to end. Okay, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. I contribute nothing. Not even my repentance and faith are of myself, but those are gifts of God opening up my eyes to my need of salvation. So this is what it means to be poor in spirit. And, And I would add that the life of the believer is an ongoing recognition of our spiritual poverty. It's not like we come into the door of, the, of, of a relationship with, with Christ because we're poor in spirit, but then we start to uh, accumulate some wealth. No, we're poor in spirit from beginning to end. We're always in need of the grace of God. And this mindset is, is foreign to, to our world. I mean, every other religion demands some inherent righteousness to contribute to salvation. But Christianity demands poverty in order to come to Christ 
for salvation. So we are blessed when we recognize our spiritual poverty because ours alone is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's go to beatitude number two. You can see why I said the beatitude number one sort of serves the foundation for the rest of the beatitudes. The second thing he says is, verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Okay, so the next blessing is pronounced on those who mourn. Now, it's possible that Jesus has in mind those who mourn or grieve over loss. Okay, blessed are those who who mourn a loss, for they shall be comforted. But I think in this context, the mourning here is not over a loss But the mourning here is over our sin. And the reason I say that is because in this context, you have blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that these are are virtues, in a sense, that that are blessed. So I think it's blessed is the one who has a spirit of mourning over their spiritual condition. I might be wrong, but I think this is the thrust. This is certainly a rich concept in the Old Testament, right? Psalm 51, after David's sin with Bathsheba, he comes to, uh, comes to, to the Lord in prayer, and his mindset is against you and you only have I sinned. There's, there's genuine mourning over his sin. Um, there's another passage that's connected to that one, Psalm 32. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read a, a portion of Psalm 32 so you catch this idea. Blesses the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent in my bones, my bones wasted away through my groanings all the day. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. But he talks here about the heaviness of, 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 of the guilt on his conscience as he sins, as he considered his sin. Okay, this is an Old Testament concept of, of mourning over our sinful condition. But I think when we come to the Beatitudes and, and we read this second Beatitude of verse 4, we would never think mourning over our spiritual condition because that thought is so foreign to us in our day. I would say it's probably rare that you and I would ever express our, our, our thoughts about sin and relationship to our sin as being one of, of mourning and grieving before God. When was the last time you or I were genuinely grieved over our sin? So I think that's the idea being communicated here. And Jesus said these people will be blessed because they will be comforted. In other words, they will be comforted by the forgiveness and grace of God. So in contrast to the world around us, there is no mourning over sin. There is celebration and pride over that which offends a holy God. But the response of the truly repentant person is to grieve over their sin. 
The third beatitude in verse 5 is this one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean to be meek? Well, some translations, I think the New American Standard in particular, uses the word gentle. And likely the understanding of this quality is the person who is, who is gentle, who is humble, who does not seek to insert his or herself even though they have the resources to do so. So you've probably heard the old adage, it's meekness is power under control. And this is probably a helpful description. And, and meekness probably applies most appropriately to those who are strong. Like it applies to those who have the ability to insert themselves, but out of humility and gentleness, they don't insert themselves. It's not that weak people can't be uh, you know, un, ungentle either, but, but, but probably the, the, the strong here are the ones who are, are probably the most ready and, and should be the most ready to exercise meekness and gentleness. Right? This is how Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's the sovereign creator, the powerful creator of the universe, and yet he's described in terms of being humble and tender and gentle with those who come to him. Now the blessing of verse 5 of this third beatitude is that they will inherit the earth. Well, this is almost a direct quote from Psalm 37:11. The meek shall inherit and then the translation the way it's translated there is the meek shall inherit the land. In Psalm 37, the reference to the land is Israel inheriting Palestine. And I think as Jesus is, is here in, in this context of really the, the believers he's speaking to are living under the Old Testament, and I think the promise for them is the same, especially in connection with Jesus is, is saying the kingdom is here and the meek will inherit the earth or will inherit the land. And I think he still has Palestine in mind because when, when Christ comes to establish his kingdom, there are both spiritual blessings and physical blessings or land blessings that are going to be fulfilled in the, the kingdom, and one of which was the promise of inheriting the land. So it's the meek who will inherit the kingdom, which means both spiritual blessing and land blessings. Okay, but it's the meek who, who inherit these things. Sometimes we think of people in, in two ways. Those people that get things done and those who don't get things done. And it's the, the people that get things done are the ones that we respect and value. Right? We admire and respect strong people in spite of the fact that they might run over individuals in order to get things done. It's better to see meekness as a, a valued characteristic. So rather than nice guys finishing last, Jesus says, no, they will inherit the earth. Okay, this is a characteristic of, of those who are meek. Okay, Beatitude number four says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Okay, notice the imagery here. You have uh, the word hunger, you have the word thirst, 
and you have the word satisfied or filled, depending on your translations. These are vivid expressions. Jesus is describing someone who has an intense longing for something. Right? If you have young children, you, you know this. Okay? Dinner is at 5, and about 4 o'clock, there is this intense longing for some sort of snack. Right? And so you have to try to balance uh, the whole situation to try to keep everybody from, uh, from exploding. Okay? So this is the idea, though, of an intense longing. So those who hunger and thirst... For righteousness, they will be satisfied. Righteousness here is probably, probably living in obedience and, and seeing righteousness, seeing righteousness uh, a righteous life fulfilled. And Jesus says these people will be satisfied because the kingdom will bring an end to their longing for those things because they'll actually see them fulfilled. Okay? So could it be described of you and me that we hunger and we thirst to walk in obedience and righteousness before our Lord. Beatitude number five, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful person is the one who is patient, who is generous, and who is forgiving with those around them. Maybe I'll put it this way. The, the merciful person is the one who recognizes how much they have been forgiven and is willing to pass that same mercy on to others even if those others don't, don't deserve it. So you remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell this story of a parable of a, of a great king who, who had this servant who owed millions and millions of dollars. And that servant was forgiven his debt, and dismissed from his presence. And as he goes out, he sees one of his servants that owes him just a little bit. And yet he doesn't forgive. And that man ends up being thrown into prison and, 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 is, not, uh, and is forced to, to pay his debt, as, as Jesus tells the story. And the point of the story is the one who has been forgiven much should be the one who forgives much. And that's the idea here of, of the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, the individuals who, have, who recognize how much mercy they've received because they also pass that mercy on to others. I like how one commentator notes it. He says this. This description of, of, of merciful is it's those who have a bent or those whose bent is to show mercy, not those who show it on occasion. And I like that because it's, it's, it's that their characteristic is to be merciful. They don't just do an occasional act of mercy. There's a big difference between being merciful and showing one or two expressions of mercy on, ex on occasion. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, they shall receive mercy? He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Is this some sort of retributive principle? Like, if you are merciful, you will receive mercy. Well, I think the idea here is this, that those who have received the mercy of God will be those who show mercy, and in so doing, they are giving evidence that they will receive mercy on the final day when they enter the kingdom. So rather than experiencing judgment, they will receive mercy, because the mercy they show is an evidence that God has been merciful to them. Again, this is countercultural. If someone wrongs you, Jesus even says later in the sermon, our typical mindset is an eye for an eye, is how we tend to think about 
the principles of mercy. We don't think about mercy, we think about revenge and evening the scales. But blessed are those who are merciful and gracious with others who have failings and faults. Beatitude number six, Jesus says in verse eight, blessed, is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure? Well, it means to be clean. And when he says pure in heart, what does he mean? Well, heart, it refers to the inner man or the core of our personhood. The Bible usually defines this or describes this in, in two categories, the, the material and the immaterial. And the heart is what describes the, the immaterial aspect of our being. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Okay, it's the place from which our life is lived. Proverbs 4.32, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs or issues of, of life. And so a pure heart produces righteousness, and a filthy heart pursues unrighteousness. In fact, later on this passage, Jesus is going to say that if you've looked with lustful intent after a woman, you've committed adultery with her already where? In your heart. So it's the place from which our life is, is lived. So what Jesus is emphasizing here is blessed is the one who is not simply pure in their actions, but to the core of their personhood, they are pure and pursue holiness even in their heart. Like when nobody's looking, they're pursuing purity. And notice what the blessing is that he says here. For they will see God. There's echoes of this phrase in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, or echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. In Hebrews 4, 14, you remember this phrase where the author of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone, and he says, for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And there he's not talking about holiness in the sense that we've been forgiven, but this, this practical holiness that is a demonstration of our, of our conversion. Apart from that pursuit of holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's essentially what he's saying here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they have the guarantee that they will see God. Beatitude number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the only time in the scriptures that the word peacemaker is found. And judging by the word here, the idea seems to be that these are the individuals who breathe grace and wisdom into conflicts. Jesus will say more about this in chapter 5 when he says, that they, you're to leave your gift at the altar and you're to go and make things right with your brother or sister. Okay, notice that these people, they are peacemakers. They are not peace fakers and they are not peace breakers. Okay, there seem to be three ways to approach conflict, two wrong ways and one right way. Right, so we could be a peace faker as the type of person who attempts to ignore all conflict and hope that it goes away. Or we can be a peace breaker as the one who is always ready for a fight and quite pugnacious as the, as the New American Standard uses. 
And it's interesting that both of these responses, either faking peace or breaking peace, neither of them result in the type of harmony that God desires. Only through peacemaking do we see the type of harmony that God desires. Only through the, using the, the wisdom of Scripture applied to conflict in these interpersonal relationships can we have true peace. Now what's interesting about this phrase, or this expression, blessed are the peacemakers, peacemakers it says, because they will be called the sons of God. And what's interesting about that phrase is it's basically this. Blessed are the peacemakers because they bear the resemblance of their heavenly father. That's what it is. They, they're, they're sons of God. They, they bear the resemblance of their father. So uh, we, from time to time, take bike rides as a family. And I have this bike that has one wheel that hooks onto the back of... Uh, hooks onto the back of my bike. And so Blake will ride uh, on, this, on this bike, uh, on the back of my bike with me, and we'll pal around town together, try to do more downhill than uphill, you know. But when, and then we'll, Julie will ride by, and we're on a family ride, and she'll say, it's like looking at the same person, right? Because Blake bears the characteristics of his dad. In fact, Mark, I just happened to look at you while I'm preaching you and Asher, right? It's the, the spitting image of these, okay? He's a blessed man, Asher is, okay? But you see the idea there that, yeah, the son bears the resemblance of the father, right? So when he says, if you are a peacemaker, you are bearing the resemblance of your father because he is a God of peace. Okay, last attribute, not attribute, uh, beatitude, number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Okay, there's a blessing pronounced on those who are persecuted, and notice this, it is for righteousness' sake. It's, they're not persecuted because of their own sinfulness or foolishness, but they're persecuted because they are doing right. See, a lot of times people face opposition because of their own prickly personalities. They think they're suffering for righteousness' sake, but it's just their prickly personalities or because of their own sin. What Jesus is blessing here is the one who has followed him and is persecuted because of it. It's interesting, the world hates those who follow Christ. The ironic thing is that genuine followers of Christ are often the most peaceful people. They, are the, the, they make the best neighbors Right? If you've got a Christian neighbor and you've got a really wild and scandalous neighbor and you need someone to like check on your house while you're gone on vacation, which one are you calling? Okay? Well, I don't know which one about you're calling, but okay, you get, the, you get the point, right? So Christians are the most peaceful. They make the best neighbors. They, they long to see justice and righteousness fulfilled. But because everything they believe stands in the face of the guilty conscience of an unbeliever, persecution is often the response. And Jesus says it this way, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if you think about it, it made no sense that people hated Jesus. There was no kinder man who, who healed the sick and the lame and performed tremendous miracles, and yet at the end you find he's despised. It was because of his teaching 
pricked the consciences of those who wanted to continue in their sin. It's interesting. So if, if we're poor in spirit, if we mourn over our sin, if we're meek and gentle, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers, the response is often going to be persecution and opposition. But Jesus says, these individuals are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you'll notice that this is the only beatitude that Jesus then repeats and then amplifies and then personalizes in the following verses, 11 and 12. Okay, because he changes it. and Now he says, blessed are you. He changes from the third person to the second person. The idea here is not simply that they're blessed simply because they are persecuted, but the idea is they're blessed because they remain faithful and they endure persecution. Okay, like Jesus told the, the parable of the, of the seeds and the one that, didn't, uh, that was among, among thorns where uh, when, when the persecution came, they, they did not endure, but they fell away. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed, not simply because you're persecuted, but you're blessed because you don't fall away. You remain faithful in the face of persecution. And in verse 12, there's two reasons why that's the case. You're blessed because you will receive reward for your faithfulness, he says. And you're blessed because you're in good company. So they persecuted the prophets, who were pictured in what Jesus is saying here as the, the men of faith of the Old Testament. So you are in good company when you face the persecution of those opposed to Christ. So these are the Beatitudes, the, the famous teachings of Jesus and the famous blessings of Jesus. So this message should do two things for us. Number one, I think it should cause us to ask, do these characteristics describe me? Okay, if these are the characteristics of the genuinely repentant, do they describe me? Am I poor in spirit? Do I mourn over my sin? Am I meek and gentle and humble, or do I feel the need to insert myself? Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness, or do I hunger and thirst after the things of this world? Am I merciful? Do I extend mercy to those who do not deserve it? So do these characteristics describe me. That's the first thing that this, that this uh, sermon, uh, this passage does for us. Secondly, if we find that these characteristics do describe us, then we have great cause for comfort. Because then we realize that God's blessing is upon us. And we might not see the fulfillment of those blessings in this life, but there is coming a day where we will be rewarded for our faithfulness and obedience to Christ. So as believers, let us not live for the blessings and satisfactions of this world, but as he says later in the sermon, let us seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Let's pray together. Father, you're good to give us the, the clear teaching and, and of your word and uh, we're thankful for the chance to examine each one of these beatitudes and to be reminded of what our life is to look like. 
and to be encouraged that if these things mark us, that we truly are blessed people. So it's good for us, Lord, to reflect on these things and ask as we walk from this place that we would reflect on these things in an ongoing way and not forget them as we leave. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to sing. You can stand together. We're going to close with singing Rock of Ages, which really is a song about being poor in spirit.